You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm the author of the book, Champion of the World, and I'm a lead MMA writer for BleacherReport.com. Joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, what's up? How you doing this week? What the hell was that? I changed the intro to the show. To yeah, you did. better reflect my, uh, my, my working status, I guess you would say. My employment status. Is that what you're going to do now? You're going to start every show this way by talking about the novel that you wrote? Why would I not do that? You you want Go ahead. just, just me, one reason? Yes, give me a compelling reason. Why would I not do that? It sounds ridiculous. Uh, you're making a fool of yourself. No, I'm not, and you're just jealous. Okay, listen. So, I will use this time, and hopefully I will save us all a lot of trouble. I'm going to use this time to tell all of our listeners out there that I have read Chad's novel a couple times, uh, owing to our writing group. It is very good. Uh, definitely right up the alley of your interests if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, there's just nothing that's not awesome about it. You should buy it. You should pre-order it since pre-orders are pretty important to books, especially from a debut novelist like the Chadster here. Uh, and please do that so that he can stop talking about it and throwing it in his introduction as if it is some kind of degree that he has earned. Thank you. Meanwhile, this guy over here from MMA Junkie and USA Today. See, you're just mad because I always say two things about you and only one about me. And now I say two things about myself. You're over there feeling this is how you get when you feel attacked, when you feel defensive. You've gotten defensive now. No, it's fine. I just, from now on, I request that you mention in my intro that I had a short story in the Best American Short Stories this year. Please me, just mention just for you, just here on out. Do you want pretty me to much indefinitely? It? I almost wrote that into my intro, but then I didn't because I already had two things to say about you. I'll just from now until the end of time. If you want, sure if there. you want that in there, buddy, I'll put that in there. You don't want to know why? Because I like you. You know what? I don't want it in there because it sounds stupid. Mm, nope, you're still wrong. Just buy Chad's book so we can stop doing this. My book is available in hardcover pre-order at Amazon.com. There we go. There it is. Ben, uh, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. There's still plenty of football to be played this season, but it already feels like the playoffs at DraftKings.com, where millionaires are being crowned all season long. DraftKings is fantasy football on demand. Play when you want, where you want, with the players you want. That's the beauty of one-week fantasy at DraftKings. Challenge friends uh, in custom leagues or join an existing one to play for your share of the millions of dollars in prizes being paid out each week. With so much money up for grabs, every game is the big game and every play matters. Renew old rivalries and create new ones by playing head-to-head with friends, co-workers, and fantasy players from across the nation. Just pick your contest, draft your players, and collect your winnings. That's it. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Ben, tell them how they can play for free. Well, Chad, hurry to DraftKings.com now and turn your love of football into a life-changing payday. Use promo code GUYS, that's G-U-Y-S, and play for free with your first deposit in Sunday's million-dollar fantasy football contest. First place takes home hundred grand. Enter GUYS for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. 
the promo code is guys. Guys. G U Y S. Guys. Not girls, it's guys. Guys. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one. Are you still there, pussy? Are you on your way, pussy? Could I give you a ride somewhere, pussy? Hey, pussy, can you stop at the store for a gallon of milk, pussy? Hey, pussy, can I interest you in term life insurance to go along with your home loan, pussy? And in round number two, two titles will be on the line this weekend as Bellator MMA puts on a pretty solid show none of you will probably watch. And in round number three, wouldn't it be a hoot if Dan Henderson and Vitor Belfort got on the mic together after their UFC main event in Brazil on Saturday and they were all like, nah, we were just fucking with you guys. We've been cheating this whole time. I mean, the statute of limitations is up on this shit, right? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, Let's do a bit of little listener mail. Listener mail. See, we're at your house this week. That's right. Because I've got a sick baby at home, and at least I understand that there are numerous sick babies here as well, but at least over here we've got a basement. Yeah. Well, for right now, the, the sick children are sleeping, but they could wake up like a mighty volcano at any time. So I've got, I've got my laptop in what I would call an unconventional location for reading. So we're going to see how this goes. Is this you making excuses already? for? Pre, I'm pre-loading an excuse Okay. here. First question this week comes to us from Jared McKenzie, who writes, As someone who works in a multi-purpose arena with various naming rights, I'm fairly certain this won't do jack, that's in all caps, for the fighters. Of course, this is another email that we receive without any context. By this, I assume Jared McKenzie means a uh, report from local Las Vegas media saying that the UFC is looking to buy the naming rights for the new Las Vegas arena. Jared a McKen report that the UFC has not yet confirmed nor denied. Jared McKenzie goes on, The only benefactor in an arena naming is the host facility. It's like advertising on a billboard about a hockey rink or baseball stadium instead. The US UFC will be paying out the ass for its logo to be displayed on the walls of a building. They won't be generating income by renting the arena because that's how the facility makes its money. It will just be another bill to take away from the fighter pay so Dana White and the Fertitas can have a bragging right. If I watch a hockey game at the Scotia Bank Saddle Dome, I'm no more likely to bank with Scotia. Do you think I said that right? I think you did. Okay. Uh, this is so stupid. As far as I know, no league, I guess the UFC is one of those, would ever pay for naming rights on an arena because when they come to town, the name is already in bright lights. If they want to buy and sell naming rights, they need to build or buy a facility and sell naming rights. That's how you make money, fucking dummies. <laughs> Discourse or however people end these. Wow, now, see, we question. should point out Jared McKenzie uh, got at, got at us on Twitter this week to let us know that he had written an email, which is uh, did he ever? Yeah, um, that's an email right it's there. It's not something that I recommend that everyone do, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it didn't really help Jared McKenzie. But it's nice when people reach out. It is nice. Yeah, uh, and I think that he does make some pretty good points in here, and points that I think what we. Also kind of made in our Breakfast of Champions, and I made in a video last week. And, and it's still one of those things where I don't know how how hard we want to be on the UFC here because we still don't know if, if this is actually true, if the UFC is actually looking into buying the naming rights. I hope not. I sincerely hope that's not a serious attempt that the UFC is trying for because I don't see the upside of it for all the reasons mentioned here. Like if you just have the UFC arena in Las Vegas, first of all, you'd have a bunch of UFC fighters that might have an entire career in the UFC and never once fight in the UFC arena. And 
there's going to be all kinds of other stuff going on. It won't be like your real arena, even if you might be trying to give that impression off. It will just be an arena that you paid a bunch of money to put your name on, which then, I mean, it seems to me more like a vanity project for the UFC than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's actually what I was just thinking while you were saying that, was that it seems like uh, the guys who currently own that company get fixated on stuff. Like, there's stuff that they feel like would be cool, right? Like, uh, international expansion was a thing where I think that they had convinced themselves that, like, that their sport could become the biggest sport in the world and they would take the success that they had in a place like Canada and that they would make, you know, they would expand that and make all of these mini markets all over the globe and they kind of wanted to do it you know, sort of like a damn the torpedoes type mentality where it's like whatever it costs, they're going to do it. Uh, you know, maybe even a thing like like having a uh, a recognizable apparel sponsor like right. Reebok, I think, is a thing that they thought would be cool because there were reports out there that they tried to do that with Under Armour and the talks didn't, didn't really work out. And then they went to Reebok as kind of a second choice. So like that strikes me as another thing where these these guys were just kind of like, oh, you know, what would be cool. It's like if every fighter in the UFC like wore Under Armour, that would make us look totally slick. Uh, and you know, they're I guess are they still going forward as far as we know with this plan to build an enormous like Zufa complex in Las Vegas, a new headquarters. Uh, it just seems like there's these things that they had they had set their minds on, set their hearts on doing all these different things. And I could see like becoming the sponsor of the MGM Grand Arena, new one, the new MGM Grand Arena, like kind of being one of those things well, where you don't necessarily know if it's going to help you in any realistic way, but at the same time, you and your boys got together and decided that it would be cool. Yeah, and maybe that's why I think there's reason to think, at least right now, that it's not serious, that it's not something that's actually going to happen, that it might be just something that, you know, you're one of the the companies to toss your name in that arena or toss your hat in that arena and it's not actually going to work out that way. I hope not because I, I think there's a lot of other things the UFC could spend that money on. It would be a lot of money too for something like that. But I think it also, the, the thing that I heard from people who thought that it was a good idea is this thing that I think has been drilled into MMA fans mentality, which is something like this will garner attention and get more attention for the sport, which will ultimately be a good thing, lead to more people watching, more people paying attention, which, A, I don't think it will. Like, I don't think, just as the, the Scotiabank Saddle Dome uh, was mentioned, it'd be the same thing if Major League Soccer had an MLS arena and you watched some other event take place at the MLS arena and thought, wait a minute, the name of this arena is after a different sport that I don't really watch? Maybe I should consider watching that, because I am watching this completely unrelated event at a building that they paid to have their name put on. That doesn't work on anybody, Not, or doesn't work on enough people, I don't think, for it to be worth the, the money. But also, I think that we still have this mentality at like, hey, if you just get the word out about MMA and what it is and convince people to give it a chance, they'll like it as much as you do. And I think that we've gotten to a point kind of culturally where people know what MMA is, man. It's not, I mean, maybe in, in some places that's more true than others, but I don't think it's just a matter of once the entire world has seen a good MMA fight, everybody will be MMA fans. This is never going to be everybody's thing for reasons that I can understand, even while I like it. I, I think that we just kind of have that old school mentality that awareness is the big issue. And that was true 10 years ago. I don't think it's true now. Yeah, I think that there are still a shocking number of people who have no idea what MMA or the UFC are. I, and I sat at a dinner table with several of them a few weeks ago. Uh, but I also think that the people who don't know what it is are people who are unlikely to become fans. I feel like if this is a thing that you are open to being interested in, 
you you have already found it. Like you have sought it out or it has sought you out uh, because you hit pause during one of the commercials, one of the copious UFC commercials. And you were like, what is this? I need to find out what this is. <laughs> uh, let me let me bring up this, though. Like, do you think that there is any upside with the UFC potentially ingratiating itself with the MGM Grand, though, by being like the naming rights of its arena. Remember a few months ago when there was a lot of speculation that the UFC had just floated a story about having an event at Cowboy Stadium as an attempt to force the hand of the MGM Grand because there was some kind of like scheduling conflict? By floated a story, you mean got several MMA media outlets to run stories as if it was almost that's, a done deal. That's what that term means. <laughs> yep, floated a story. Uh like, so maybe, I don't know, obviously maybe this costs way too much money to make this worthwhile, but like maybe there is an upside in kind of like having this relationship with the MGM Grand where if your name is on the arena or whatever, you you get first dibs. I mean, I think there is an upside to that, but at what cost is a question. I mean, there has to be a price point at which it stops being a good deal. And I think the naming rights for an arena, based on what those usually go for, is well beyond that point. I think a lot of it, though, too, is that the the UFC owners probably feel like they want their stamp right there in Las Vegas. That kind of like, hey, we were here, we're an important force in Las Vegas, which they are. And I think that most people in Las Vegas recognize that. And I think they kind of want that in in stone, so to speak. And maybe that's what makes them think it's worth the price tag. I just think if I, if I were a fighter and I'm already complaining about money, I already feel like I'm not making enough, like it's borderline not worth it to even keep doing this sport. Because there's not enough chance of uh, it financially being worthwhile at some point down the road. And then I see the UFC spend millions and millions of dollars to put its name on the side of a building that I may or may not ever even fight in. That's the point where I get really, really mad. Uh, this next question comes from Miguel Class. He writes, I'm sure that a lot of fans are extremely frustrated with the news of Habib's latest injury. I see that Miguel Class is not even going to take a stab at Nurmagomedov. Maybe he was going to, but then he knew how mad it would make you to just refer to him as Khabib. But before we go off speculating over. about how he could have avoided this if he had only refrained from training or taking so many emotionless group photo food up group photos. Sorry, that was a, kind of a funny joke, and I fumbled it. If only he had <laughs> refrained from taking so many emotionless group photos in dingy Dagestani wrestling rooms. Let's remember that we as fans probably know very little about the ins and outs of high-level MMA training. Also, there's nobody who wanted to avoid this more than Habib. He doesn't get paid by the UFC to stand around in tracksuits looking sketchy. Fighters have a small window of opportunity to make their money before they fade into obscurity and have to start making appearances at the old Dave and Buster's. Thoughts? And then in parentheses he says, see how I turned that into a question somehow? there at the last minute uh crushing news yeah ben this past week that habib Nurmagomedov uh is injured once again and out of his scheduled fight against uh tony ferguson and uh edson barboza is now in which is i guess a pretty cool fight to make uh as a uh plan b um but this is a tough one for those of us who wanted to see Nurmagomedov come back and make a run at this lightweight division to see how good he could actually be and uh I saw in the latest story that I saw at MMA Junkie was him saying that he might not, that he's unsure if he would even come back from this injury, which could just be the current depression talking. I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, but we are, I think, treading dangerously close to uh, maybe not Dominic Cruz territory, but like territory where this is the guy that 
Habib Nurmagomedov is, that he's the guy with all the talent who's constantly injured. Yeah, and that would really be a bummer, too, because 22-0 and with the, the kind of future that guy seems to have in front of him, and then he hasn't fought since April 2014 when he... Uh, when he won that decision over Rafael Dos Anjos, of all people, the the current UFC lightweight champ, and to to see him, you know, it's more crushing I think to see him injured. Then he comes back; he's right there on the verge of a, what looks like on paper a really good fight that will set him up to fight for a title. And then this close to that, he gets injured and has to pull out of that. It is the point when you start to think: Is this a trend that we're going to start seeing with him? Is this is it a problem with his training? Is it that he's just his body just can't hold up? over the long term. I don't know. I mean, I, I can understand him getting depressed enough to say, like, hey, this might be it. Screw it. Um, but I really hope that whatever it takes, you figure out what's happening there. And it doesn't seem like they've necessarily tried everything that they can try yet, as far as your boy Nermi goes. You're right, though, that that replacement fight is not bad, which is kind of one of the advantages of the lightweight division. You lose one contender. You got some guys you can reach down and, and plug in there most of the time. And that the fight doesn't completely fall apart. 6-0 and now in the UFC. He's just 27 years old, but it's staggering to think of anybody being 22-0 and in the in the lightweight division. Even if, you know, the first 16 of those fights uh, took places took place in, in events we don't know that much about in, in Dagestan and, and Russia and the Ukraine and stuff like that. Still, the way he tore through uh, those first six fights in the UFC, and, and as you said about him be, beating Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, in his last fight, which was now April of 2014. Like, it's not like he was out here uh, beating nobodies. He beat Dos Anjos, who's the champ. He beat uh, Abel Trujillo, who's a guy that we know, Tiago Tavares, Gleason Tebow. Um, so some some mid-level guys in the lightweight division who are not uh, just pushovers. And so I think we had good reason to believe that Nurmagomedov was going to be a capital letter guy in the lightweight division. Uh, and now all of that is kind of in doubt, which is too bad. And you see that happen to people in sports. That, you know, could have, should have, would have, might have been guys who just get hamstrung by injury or what have you. And, and uh, it's it's, uh, it's not fun to think about that Nurmagomedov might be one of those dudes. Well, you know, and I was just thinking this recently with Conor McGregor talking about how bad his knee was injured uh, before the Chad Mendes fight. Uh, and, you know, he already had one knee surgery. And that's when you start to think, wait a minute, either is it something going on wrong in your training or this could be an issue that's going to hamper you. I mean, obviously he won that Chad Mendes fight. Uh, didn't look great right up until he did, uh, and kind of blamed some of it afterwards on his knee injury. Uh, but you do wonder, is that going to be a problem for some of these guys, especially as they get older? Because um, it'd be a damn shame to lose some of these really talented dudes to chronic injuries. Next question this week comes from Ross from Ohio. He writes, so I totally understand why Vanderlei Silva and Nick Diaz would fight the NSAC's decisions when the punishment was excessive and unfair. But now I see that Husamar Paul Harris and his team are laying the groundwork for fighting the NSAC's two-year suspension after he held a submission too long for the umpteenth time. Do you think that the high-profile cases with Diaz and Silva will open the floodgates for legitimate suspensions being challenged every time any punishment is handed down? Please discuss. Uh, this did, frankly, seem like, uh, A, a situation where the Nevada State Athletic Commission might have reverse Roger Goodell'd it a little bit. Remember that Goodell was under fire for, uh, for not only the, the Patri- New England Patriots spygate thing, which a lot of the owners in the NFL felt like the New England had gotten off with a slap on the wrist, but he was also kind of, uh, under fire for 
handing down a light suspension against Ray Rice, the right. uh, uh, Ravens running back who punched his fiance in the face in an elevator. Uh, when you know Rice got suspended for a year or something, he that he's still not back in the league, and then the the Patriots got hammered for their uh, Deflate Gate stuff. Seemed like the NSAC might have been a little bit gun shy after all the bad press it got on this Nick Diaz five year ban, and came back and tried to tried to do maybe what it thought would be regarded as more uh, reasonable with Rusmar Palharis, and yet that pissed everyone off as well. Kind really? of uh, if you were on the NSAC, you might think seems like we just can't win. I thought that this was uh, uh, probably the most reasonable thing I could have hoped for. I think I, a two-year yeah. ban is right there in the zone of strong enough that it's appropriate for what Guzman Parajos has done. That sends the message that needs to be sent to him uh, and will, you know, there's no way for him to feel like it's a slap on the wrist and he got off easy here, but it's not so long that it's a ban or it, does, it doesn't feel like an overreach to me. That feels... Two years feels just about perfect for this situation. I don't disagree with that from a real-world standpoint, but most of the reaction, and maybe this was just the echo chamber that is Twitter, but most of the reaction as it was handed down was that he got off easy. Uh, and maybe that's because we were used to seeing or had just were just coming off the Nick Diaz thing. Yeah, when they say got off easy, they might mean in comparison to what the NSAC has recently done. This but Nick Diaz thing, by the way, is going to give MMA fans the opportunity to make uh, misguided comparisons for the rest of their lives. Good. They'll be like, Good. oh, smoke that. weed, get banned for five years, but, you know, and then whatever thing they want to complain <laughs> yes. about. Like, Well, I think as far as the question is, are we entering a period where everybody sees the suspension the NSAC gives them as a preliminary finding and you have the opportunity to challenge it from there? I think that... In some sense, that not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. I think that what we need just in the sport generally is a little clearer process for how we adjudicate this stuff. Because right now, it's you're in trouble for something, whether it's you know, holding a submission too long or a drug test or something. You go before the NSAC and you make your case and you don't necessarily know what's going to happen next or what can happen next after that happens. And so I think that that's a big problem for us. We need to know roughly like what the guidelines are what kind of punishment you can kind of expect from from various infractions and then how the appeals process for that stuff works because right now it's kind of like okay you go in front of them they may just completely disregard any rights you think you have uh pretend like it's a courtroom except for when you raise legitimate objections and they literally laugh them off and then you'll have to go to court to or you know threat, threaten to go to court enough to get a settlement out of them uh, in order to get anything that you consider justice. And, I mean, they kind of have, they've made that bed for themselves uh, with stuff like trying to ban Banerly Silva for life or the five-year ban for Nick Diaz. So they can't really complain too much if they feel like their uh, their punishments aren't being heeded automatically. But I do think we need a little better of a, of a process all the way through um, rather than just saying like, all right, we'll go to the NSAC and then we'll go to court over it afterwards. Because, uh, man, that's just, that is going to create... A, a clusterfuck of a situation for MMA going forward. But if fighters did think that, if they did regard the NSAC's uh, decisions as a thing, preliminary finding and a thing that could then be challenged in actual court of law, uh, the, uh, one might even say the NSAC had brought that on themselves. Be, no, absolutely. By acting like themselves. a kangaroo court a lot yes. in the past. And, and maybe if they had had an e more even hand or, a uh, as you said, a more discernible 
uh, you know, due process, then that wouldn't happen. But at this point, especially now that the NSAC meet- meetings are on the, the fightpass.com and everyone can tune in and watch them, uh, they look like bumblers. They do. And so I could understand why someone would go in there and then uh, get a suspension and think they could challenge it. Do you think right suspension now... Suspension handed down by bumblers. Do you think the big homie Paul Harris is sitting around right now wondering why the groundswell of support for Nick Diaz has not quite transferred over to him yet. Do you think he's still waiting? Who knows what the big homie Paul Harris is thinking? <laughs> Maybe just standing in a room stomping and snorting. I don't or, know. Or just standing in the corner, staring at the floor. Yeah. Waiting for someone to turn on the light and tell him it's time. Or just, what was it? Somebody put a joke on Twitter, how we see ourselves, and it was a picture of a of a human being, and then it was how Paul Harris sees us, and it was just that person's legs. <laughs> so, like, maybe that's, he's just, he's, his eyes are downcast because he's waiting for his opening to heel hook somebody. <laughs> Last question this week comes to us from Ryan Dunlay. He writes, gentlemen, ever since Sinead O'Connor and Jason Aaron uh, serenaded Conor McGregor and Chad Mendez, respectively. Look at all full names, Chad. Are you happy now? I know. Uh, Ryan Dunlay actually sent us an email after this to say that he got the name of the person who sang the Chad Mendez song wrong, but I forgot to correct it, so. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know who that dude was anyway. So we're just so. going to hope nobody noticed that. Uh, respect- Jason Aaron, that sounds like a real person, right? Yeah, sure. That sounds like a country and western singer. Could be. It was a terrible country and western song that Chad Mendes walked out to, too, right? Yeah. Uh, or was it like Stained or something? I don't remember now. I've I blocked it out. Uh, let's see here. Bah, bah, bah. During their UFC 189 walkouts, I haven't been able to stop thinking about endless epic rock and roll possibilities for future fight cards. We've all been imagining rad shit like the Deftones jamming on... And then he writes, Chad must pronounce this. And then it is a word that I can't pronounce. Phytosera? Phytosera? Nailed it. Uh, While Nick Diaz stalks toward the cage at UFC 209 in Stockton or Blur, escorting Bisping with Song 2 to an England card, right? And if not, what the fuck is wrong with me? Uh, On the question of live music for fighter walkouts, I feel like you are dealing with... It is almost the exception to the rule when that works. And maybe it's, it, it kind of worked in the Mendez-McGregor uh, fight because the UFC did it, and they are good at live event production, whereas normally when we see stuff like, I don't know, corn or whatever trying to play during an MMA event, it's always been affliction trying to put on the show, and it's always been terrible. Well, I think the important distinction is that when they did it at uh, UFC 189, they didn't do the way boxing would do it when you would have some rapper walk you out. Where it's by like, some rapper, you mean Red Man, right? <laughs> well, like Mike Tyson to the cage? Well, or, you know, and that's the thing, too, is like when you have the performer down there on the floor walking the guy out, first of all, I think as much as I love rap music, does not translate that well oftentimes to live performance. But also when you have the, the performer down there, right there with the fighter, I, I do think that that gets a little messy. And the way that the UFC did it where... They had these two little mini stages up above uh, where the fighters walked out from and kind of isolated up there. I think that was the the way to go. I also think from what Dana White said afterward that they won't be doing it very often because it sounded like it was prohibitively expensive. Well, yeah, you go, you get Sinead O'Connor to come down and sing for Conor McGregor. I imagine she's going to ask you for some money. Yeah, I don't even think it was just that, too, but also like the creating the... The apparatus building by which a all tower this stuff for them to stand happen. on. Yeah. Uh, you know what I thought was most interesting about this question was the mention of Nick Diaz and Michael Bisping one right after the other in two separate sentences because hashtag would watch. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of fight you would think that those two guys 
will be interested in moving forward. Uh, and that also got me thinking. So let's, you know, we assume now that the, the way will be cleared for Nick Diaz to come back sometime next year, 2016. Uh, what is his future end upside in the UFC? Because, you know, even previous to this, uh, loss to Anderson Silva in his last fight and then the suspension, it's not as though this guy had been particularly active and it's not as though he had been particularly successful. Uh, so I just wonder what he will return to and whether or not either of those things even matter in terms of his, his like marketability as a fighter. Yeah. Well, I think that I don't know that it matters so much to his marketability, but I think the difficulty is in convincing Nick Diaz that the fights are worth his time. Uh, money is one way that you can do that, of course, but you know, you're not going to get Nick Diaz to go fight Uriah Hall. Like that's just not going to happen. You know, he, he, he has been doing this for years where he would make these unreasonable demands of who he wanted to fight. And it was kind of crazy until they started coming true where he got George St. Pierre and they got Anderson Silva. And you're like, okay, you've taught him now that he can go out there and say, give me Fedor bitches or don't even bother. And he, he has reason to think that he's going to sit at home and the phone's going to ring and somebody's going to be like, all right, you and Fedor, New Year's Eve, buddy, get ready. Uh, so I don't think you're going to be able to use the normal playbook that UFC likes to use where they think, all right, either this guy can fight another old guy or, uh, he can fight some young guy who might be coming up or, and we're trying to sort that situation, young lion, old lion kind of thing out. I think that. Michael Bisping might be kind of the low end of what you could get Nick Diaz to agree to just on sheer, like, you know, uh, attention value. It would, it would be pretty awesome if Nick Diaz segues seamlessly from being on suspension, like freed of his suspension from the Nevada State Athletic Commission to immediately involved in a contentious contract renegotiation with the UFC. That would seem. Utterly perfect, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, a comment, a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll put you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every fr Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss. Uh, from Tuesday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast, it's short, it's funny, it's uh, it's easy to unsubscribe if you don't like it. Go there and sign up for it. We think you'll like it. You know, we got a ton of Breakfast of Champions subscriptions this week, like way more than normal. I wonder what's fueling that. I have no idea. Did we do anything special? Did we do and did we offer to give someone something free and we don't remember it? It's well, l let's not say anything if we did and let them see if they remember it. I think maybe what's doing it is this awesome pitch that you have worked out where one of the things you stress is how easy it is to stop receiving. The yeah, well, it champions. is. It's very easy to stop receiving it. And, you know, we we have very few unsubscribes. And the people who unsubscribe, obviously, you know, we don't want them anyway. Yeah, right? we mail They're... poop to their houses, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, well, that's... Painstaking <laughs> business, but it's worth it. It's on, really worth it. On that note, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I have to admit that the notion of John Jones and Daniel Cormier engaging in another 
contentious feud during the lead up to their fight, which we all assume is coming, even though it hasn't been announced. It's sort of the only move on the board for the UFC at this point in the light heavyweight division. Uh, just because I felt like we had seen that before, you know, and, and, and much like Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo having to do it again, brother, uh, now John Jones and Daniel Cormier have to do it again. And the idea of them just kind of putting it on repeat for their second fight seemed tiresome to me. However, <laughs> I found myself pleasantly entertained this past weekend by their Twitter skirmish, I guess you should say. Uh, I think there's a few interesting things to talk about in relation to that, uh, including what Daniel Cormier thought he was doing. But uh, yo, I would like to hear your thoughts first before we open that up. Do you feel like John Jones cutting loose on Twitter a little bit more freely and getting into it with Daniel Cormier is... Uh, entertaining or just just kind of repetitive and more of the same of what we've already seen i was certainly entertained and i think that one of the things i heard people saying over and over or saw people saying more uh accurately was that this was john jones like more authentic john jones in a lot of ways and i think that i can't tell if it's he was trying to present some image of himself for so long and people wouldn't buy it and the more he tried the more they called him a phony that he just decided to go all right here have what you want, or if this is actually just a little bit more uh, realistic and, and genuine from him, that this is kind of how he's actually thinking about stuff, so why not just go ahead and say it? And people are eating it up. I think that, in a way, that John Jones is a lot easier for people to uh, accept and probably a lot easier for them to like uh, in that weird pro-wrestling sense of the term. So uh, I think that it does nothing but help the interest in the bout itself, which already I'm pretty interested in. Uh, and I also think that uh, it's one of those things where it feels like an, one of those rivalries where you know one guy is probably taking it, taking this stuff pretty seriously, and you wonder if the other guy is using that against him. Because it seems like Daniel Cormier is going to get superheated over some of this stuff. You think so? The like, I think, they get to the I think it, it's sort of interesting to, to talk about what Daniel Cormier was doing this past weekend on Twitter because uh, he alleged that he was going to go to the opening, the, the grand opening of the new Jackson Winklejohn MMA right. facility in Albuquerque, uh, which from everything that I've heard uh, is an insane facility, uh, but clearly had no intention of ever going, right? That would be silly to go. Um, and then photoshopped himself into a <laughs> yes. photo of the Jackson Winklejohn facility uh, which I, you have to believe he just meant that as kind of an uh, ironical joke. Uh, and of course, it was not necessarily relieved, uh, received that way, I think, by some people on Twitter, which makes me feel kind of bad for Daniel Cormier. I feel like his uh, personality and sense of humor don't translate as well to the 140 character uh, format as John Jones's do, because John Jones will just say, are you, are you there? Are you here yet, pussy? Yes. Uh, and, and Daniel Cormier is like kind of too much of a nice guy and maybe too much of a nuanced individual to really win at that battle. Uh, but like, I don't know. I feel like Daniel Cormier was just having fun with it and it was received more, uh, seriously than he meant. Cause clearly like he's posting pictures of him hanging out with his kid on Halloween. He's not on his way to Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah. Well, right? which would be ridiculous anyway, but awesome. Like the whole <laughs> idea that Daniel Cormier would show up at the Jackson Winklejohn grand opening and that maybe there is, there is an alternate universe somewhere where John Jones and Daniel Cormier settled this in a basement somewhere. Kimbo slice, Sean Gannon style is appealing. 
for for whatever reason. Well, to a certain kind of fight fan, I think it is. And, and that, that is me. I am that fight fan. But for the same, I don't know, maybe I, I feel a little bit more jaded about some of this stuff. But for the same reason that I've always hated the I'll fight you for free trope that some guys like to trot out uh, to when they're involved in some kind of rivalry. Motherfucker, no, you won't. You do this for a living. We all know you're not about to go down there to the gym and get in a fight. That would be stupid. I would be it disappointed would be awesome, in you if though. you did that because you would be giving away this payday over this thing. Um, but I enjoy a little fun with the idea. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If, if people don't get that it's just an idea, then I think that that says more about them than it does about Daniel well, Cormier. Well, what do you think Cormier was doing? Because Jones clearly like, at least acted like he thought he was serious. There's no way. There's no way John Jones was like, all right, look, looking around to see if Daniel Cormier is going to show up. Well, I mean, that that's that's how he acted. And then yeah, that's I mean, how, maybe I, took the opportunity just to call Daniel Cormier a pussy for not showing up. Yes, I but think that that's what it again, is. Again, that refers back to the same idea. Like, what was Daniel Cormier going for here? Yeah, well, I don't I mean, I think that. Right now, you if you're Daniel Cormier and you're involved in this, like John Jones clearly not going to leave you alone on Twitter, right? He's over there calling you his belt sitter, uh, which is frankly kind of a sweet move uh, given the everybody's position here. You got to do something. And I think that pointing out the absurdity of it is as good a thing to do as any. And obviously that's not – that's going to be lost on some people out there. Uh, but I think that's fine. I think that the – we were talking before about whether the events that have unfolded between the after their their first meeting made us more interested in seeing a second meeting. And you said no. You think it's pretty much going to go the same way. I think it's going to be worse actually. Now you think I've John up, Jones I've, will beat him worse? I've, yes, time. I've upgraded my opinion. I feel like given some time to think about it, given some time to see and hear from John Jones. Uh, and to talk to, to, you know, to have heard from people who, who know a little bit about what he's been up to, uh, it sounds like he will return in just beastly, beastly fashion, better than we have ever seen him, bigger than we have ever seen him, stronger than we have ever seen him. And I think I said this last week on the show, I wholeheartedly believe that that will happen, not because he has exercised the demons from his life, but because he's gotten really mad and someone took his title away and to John Jones. That is the kind of thing that is going to make the part of his brain click over and just say, okay, motherfuckers, watch this. That's what I think will happen. Okay, now does that make you more excited for the rematch than for the first fight? I mean, even though I thought John Jones would win, I was still still excited for the rematch. I mean, this is as good as we're getting in the light heavyweight division, maybe ever, frankly, because... Uh, you know, you got two fighters who you could argue are, are a higher caliber than, than Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell, which was the, the previous marquee light you, heavyweight. You could feud. and should argue that. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell Chuck Liddell that though. <laughs> uh, and you know, now these guys are going to fight twice. Uh, I think it would be awesome if Daniel Cormier won and they had to fight a third time, even though that would maybe shake some of the luster off of John Jones as greatest of all time. Uh, but you know, a trilogy between these these two guys would be the greatest thing of all time, and 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 getting to see them fight again, I feel like is a can't miss opportunity. Uh, I just worried that the lead up to it would be excruciating, and so far that hasn't happened. But we still got time. We still got plenty <laughs> yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah we, like you said, hasn't been announced yet, so we got plenty of time. Uh, I do, though. I feel like when we were talking about it before, and after seeing uh, Daniel Cormier, uh, his performance against Alexander Gustafson, and that I thought it was a really gutsy performance, which in some way made me think 
in some way, everything we've seen from him since the John Jones fight has made me think that, all right, maybe if there's anybody out there who can learn from the experience of fighting John Jones and do better against him the second time, maybe it's Daniel Cormier. At the same time, if you can't beat the man when he's partying and out there running around the streets doing blow, what chance do you have if he comes back clean with his head on straight and, like you said, uh, ready to, to make a statement, pissed off about everything that's happened? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I like your chances in that situation. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that's kind of interesting about this fight, too, is how poorly Daniel Cormier's two previous fights have done uh, at the box office. And the idea that maybe uh, the, their first fight sold well. Obviously, John Jones's first fight with Alexander Gustafson kind of bombed as well from a pay per view standpoint, and then Daniel Cormier's did did as well. Uh, but like this is the this is the fight and the feud that the light heavyweight division needs. Frankly, like this is the best chance uh, to get those buy rates back up to respectable levels. This is the best chance to get the two best two hundred five pounders in the world out there to fight. Uh, and I don't think there's any real way that that. Uh, I think don't think there's any way to complain about it except that the you know we might get into some repetitive uh bullshit in the in the lead up although think about how awesome it would have been had Daniel Cormier maybe unannounced would have been the better way to do it but showed up at the Jackson Winkle John Rand opening with those UFC embedded cameras maybe dressed as Iron Man wearing a mask and then he goes uh uh, you know, Tito Ortiz sidekick style and takes the mask off. <laughs> to reveal another mask to underneath? To reveal another mask underneath. Or how about if he just rolled up in there and threw his shoe at John Jones? Let, let me book this shit. That's what I'm saying. Just let me book this. <laughs> All right, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two this week. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw that Vitor Belfort, after pulling out of the MMA Fortnite on like roughly two hours notice when Ariel Helwani would not agree to not ask him about the Deadspin TRT article. Then he showed up on Inside MMA on Access TV, basically as if he realized, okay, I have to say something about this and these guys will at least be a little bit nice to me. Now, I'm not going to focus on the fact that Vitor Belfort again did the Vitor thing where he claims that he never hides anything from anyone in parentheses once we already know about it. Instead, I'm going to focus on the fact that the interview started with the Inside MMA host asking Vitor Belfort about his meeting with Republican presidential candidate Ben Carson. The best thing of last week, by the way. <laughs> his response to that was to talk about how amazing it was and how awesome Ben Carson is, uh, a claim that he backed up by saying several times one of the great things about him was that he does not have an agenda. What? This presidential candidate, a guy who is out there pretty much every day in front of crowds talking about his agenda. And Vitor Belfort says the great thing about him is he doesn't have an agenda. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? He's that a candidate for president. Agenda. Pretty sure he has a political agenda. Agenda is sort of the, the order of the day. Yeah. Right there. Well, Ben, this week, uh, I'm just going to read this quote, which you sent me earlier in the week. It's, it's, uh, I believe, is this from Joe Rogan's podcast? He's talking about Misha Tate. They're talking about oh, yes, I think Misha Tate yeah. and Ronda Rousey. Misha Tate's recent comments that uh, she's got to start thinking about the next stage of her life. And Joe Rogan kind of uh, wondering aloud why Misha Tate doesn't earn as much money as the greatest women's mixed martial artist of all time. And, and this is, I think, I don't want to take him horribly out of context. I hope we're not doing that. But like, this is just him. I don't know. Uh, Thinking out loud, I guess you would say. Here's Joe Rogan on Misha Tate. It's not like she's not hot. 
She's hot as fuck, right? She's got a beautiful body. Great ass. Sorry I said that. Sorry, Misha. All due respect, but she's a great fighter, too. Huh. I don't... I just I can just say, are you fucking kidding me after that, right? I don't have to comment on that further. Well, I like to imagine that somewhere Misha Tate driving her car, listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, said out loud, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Joe Rogan. Thank you, Joe Rogan. Finally. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a Bellator coming. I, I did. I talked about it in the intro. Bellator. You probably weren't listening. You're no, still I'm... so mad about me uh, trying to promote my book on our podcast. You want to mention the name of the book one more time? Champion of the World. There you go. Available for pre-order at Amazon.com. Yep. Bellator 145, which the internet tells me is titled With a Vengeance, uh, and it's coming to St. Louis. Scott Trade Center. The Scott what, Trade what? Center, baby. Makes me want to go out there and patronize Scott Trade, whatever that is. Yeah. Insurance company, maybe? No, not even close. Bank? Closer. Ah, uh, they make paper towels? Let's just stop this okay. right here. When you look at this card on paper, this one seems like it might be worth setting the old DVR if you can't get to your, your TV in time for it because you're looking at uh, the big, big homie, Bobby Lashley. Yep. Uh, taking on James Thompson there, who, frankly, I... I had assumed had had moved on to another life as like under an assumed name and a he plays the mountain in Game of Thrones southeastern Asian island by now and um, former Bellator lightweight champion Michael Chandler taking on David Rickles on this card uh, you got to uh, up there higher up Will Brooks ill Will Brooks your Bellator lightweight champion taking on Marcin Held uh, and one of the pit bulls doesn't really matter which one uh, the one who's got a belt there uh, taking on Daniel Strauss. Kind of a lot of stuff going on there yes, for Bellator. absolutely. This is the kind of event that makes you feel bad for Bellator, right? Because we were just talking before we went, before we started recording this, uh, about how if you're Bellator, you kind of know that you're not that big of a deal yet because Wikipedia doesn't even make pages for your events. They just have the one long page of all the events you're going to do this year that you have to scroll down and find. Oh, the shame and like, dignity. If the majority of mixed martial arts fans were interested in Bellator as a fight promotion that has fighters and puts on fights, this would be one we would be super excited about, right? Yes. This would be one that, that should be making a lot of headlines, and maybe it is, and I just haven't been aware of it. But like this, this I don't think that they're calling this one of their quote unquote tent pole events. Uh, and I, and you know, that doesn't seem like this kind of thing from Bellator, even though this is a high quality mixed martial arts card featuring Bellator fighters. It doesn't feel like this is the business that they're in at this point. Like they're in the Ken Shamrock Kimbo Slice business, right? Well, yeah, okay, but I feel like stuff like this is better than the when they used to do, okay, every Friday night there'd be a Bellator card, uh, and stuff like this would have been spread out all sure. over the place. Yeah, it's better now, no doubt about that, ever since uh, Scott Coker has gone over there and, and, and switched things up and brought in his own vision. There's no argument to be made that Bellator's not better off, because it obviously is. Uh, and in fact, you know... <laughs> They've got some good fighters. I think that that with two titles on the line this weekend, 
Uh, they got a chance to pull a decent rating, but like I said last week or two weeks ago, those, these grab bag episodes run together in my mind. Uh, that I don't know if ratings is really even what we should be looking at to, to gauge Bellator's success right now because the winning strategy for Bellator just to me seems to sort of be to put on events like this that are good, that you're going to draw a decent, decent crowd, a decent rating, but like just kind of keep plugging along and waiting to see, uh, if your chance opens up the chance to, to take the baton and run with it. Yeah, but then if you if that is what you're relying on, and we've talked about how that might be the strategy, then are you is your business strategy too reliant on somebody else fucking up? In or any other industry, maybe, in a, yes. In a court case. Yeah, maybe if you were in the paper tra- towel industry like Scott Trade is, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't just want to sit around and wait for Bounty to, to fuck the dogs. Scott but, Trade, for those messes that aren't that big or important? But in the mixed martial arts industry, I feel like waiting for someone else to fuck up is actually a pretty good plan. Uh, <laughs> but, and not necessarily even waiting for the UFC to, to, to fuck up. But like, if you're Scott Coker and you're Bellator, like, it's not that bad to just can, if you ended up being the second best mixed martial arts promotion for the rest of Scott Coker's natural life and for the rest of Bellator's life as a company, uh, that wouldn't be bad, right? No, I guess not. As long as, Internally, you understand what that means and, and you're okay with all of that. I guess you can make do with it. You know, you mentioned the drawing a, a good live crowd kind of thing, which I think, uh, this is one of the things that Strike Force did pretty well when, uh, Scott Cooper was running the show there is when they would go somewhere. Like I remember distinctly when they went to St. Louis. Um, I don't know if it was at the, the Scott Trade Center or not. I, I, I don't remember any paper towels lying around, but, uh, it could have been. And, the the thing that uh, Strike Force did pretty well was using local talent, local gyms, and would basically just pepper them throughout the undercard and sold a lot of tickets that way. And you, it would be weird because you'd be sitting there on press row and then they would announce some guy on the prelims that you've never heard of. And I remember when you'd go to a Strike Force thing, and especially if you had to live blog it or something, I'd always have to make a note on my uh, little program thing that they hand out like which guy is wearing the red gloves and which guy is wearing the blue gloves because I had no idea who the hell these people are and one of those guys would get a huge ovation from the crowd he'd have like 50 people that he'd set up there and they were always really good at that of figuring out like all right you got to sell some tickets you got to give something on tv for everybody who does not care where in the hell this thing takes place but you also got to sell some tickets locally. And when I look and I see that Bellator 145 has a prelim card that I believe has 10 fights on it, that's the prelims. The prelims yeah, are there's, as there's 10 prelims on are this. as long as you would expect a full like UFC fight card to be. Yes, an entire MMA event. And then there are five fights on the main card. That's a lot of fights, man. That's a lot of fights, man. Uh Ben Scott Trade he is a privately owned American discount retail brokerage firm headquartered in town and country, Missouri. There See, you go. See, we just proved Jared McKenzie from his from his uh, listener mail earlier. We proved him wrong. I just Googled Scott Trade. We found out what it was. I talked about it on our podcast. Now are you going to go become a patron of Scott Trade? I'm putting my uh, debit card information in right now. Gonna buying some stock. Is that what that is? <laughs> Brokerage wow. firm? I still don't know what I don't do. think they want your debit card, man. Uh, the big homie Kimbo Slice is back in the news, Ben. Speaking of this Bellator event, and I saw mentioned as a potential future opponent for him, they announced the date that he'll be fighting, but not who he'll be fighting against, but both Bobby Lashley and James Thompson, who are on this card this weekend, uh, were mentioned as potential opponents for Kimbo Slice at that date. 
Uh, are you buying that? Like, let's say Bobby Lashley wins this, right? Because I think that's the way to bet that he beats James Thompson. Uh, Kimbo versus Bobby Lashley. Is that a thing that it seems like both Kimbo and Bobby Lashley sign on for? If to you, well, I don't know if you saw Bobby Lashley's comments, uh, to, uh, to, to MMA junkie, but he did not seem like he was terribly enthusiastic about it. That's, that, that was my first reaction would be that like, that would be a different, Bobby Lashley from a strategical standpoint that we have seen yet in his MMA career to go out there uh, and take on somebody even as well-known as Kimbo Slice. Uh, but I guess, man, guy's 39 years old. Maybe he feels like uh, it's an hour never. With the thing with Bobby Lashley, it's always struck me, and I feel like we've had this conversation before. When you interview Bobby Lashley, he's always a really smart, interesting, yeah. thoughtful dude. He's a great dude to interview. Yeah. Uh, and seems like a really nice guy, and I always really enjoy talking to him. And it's always this thing. It, it seems like the same thing over and over again, though. Like, okay, I had some missteps in the past, but, like, I'm doing this my way. I don't care what anybody else thinks about the, the path that I've chosen through MMA, uh, and it's all going to work out in the end. But it seems like it's been years of that, just absolutely years. And you're right. Like, you would think, like, okay, what is the goal here? Because – if you could go in there and smash a dude like Kimbo, that seems like it would be pretty awesome for you and would lead to bigger paydays and everything and that all the good stuff that you imagine fighters want. So why aren't you more enthusiastic about that that possibility? Well, I don't know. It does seem like he's always kind of walked his own path, like like you said. And dare I say, maybe he's the Bellator of fighters. He's just kind of plugging away, doing his own thing uh, without really worrying about what else is out there. This fight with James Thompson, Ben, is the rematch of the hit Bobby Lashley's loss to James Thompson that we've talked about before on the podcast from Super Fight League 3. Ah, uh, yeah, Super Fight League Over there three. in New Delhi. The granddaddy of them all, yeah. So there, there's some intrigue there uh, steeped around Bobby Lashley versus James Thompson too. Uh, Michael Chandler versus David Rickles. That'll be fun. You yeah. know Dave, Dave Rickles is going to bring his, his cudgel to the, to the cage <laughs> and walk out in, in a fur singlet. That's right. Walk out wearing some kind of animal skin. That that should be fun for for the St. Louis crowd there on the Scott Trade Arena. Uh, I I can't remember who it was saying on Twitter. Uh, I think one of the Bloody Yellow people that they had interviewed David Rickles and asked him, "Do you have a second club in case something happens to the first club?" And David Rickles claims that he does, which is how you know you're all in on a gimmick. If I'm David Rickles, I wouldn't be surprised to find out he had an entire checked bag full of <laughs> caveman props that he's not even planning to use, but just just in case. Do you think goes when? Wrong. He has to check it because before when he would try to bring it through uh, TSA where it's always opening it up and being like, you know, of course, that dinosaurs and cavemen did not coexist. Therefore, your use of this dinosaur prop along with your caveman gimmick does not, strictly speaking, make much sense. Over under, does this do better or worse in the ratings as uh, Dynamite? Dynamite. Dynamite. The kickboxing Bellator thing. I, I remember it. I would have to think worse, but then again, I was surprised at how poorly Dynamite gonna, yeah, did see, in the I'm going to say better just because Dynamite did so badly. Well, then are we just saying that like we no one understands the the various wins that blow people onto TV the night of a Bellator event? It's how many how many hundred of th hundreds of thousands of people pass out during the last episode of Cops. That's what we'll have to. We'll just we'll have to accept that as fact. So you're hoping for a particularly boring episode of Cops. Yeah, not yeah. so boring that they change the channel early on. But just like one of those ones asleep. from Portland where the the elderly cop is driving around trying to give lectures to the streetwalkers, trying to get to save them. 
Okay. So not, not like we're chasing a shirtless guy down the middle of a rural Georgia road. Yeah, That's people will not pass out during that. We're not flipping over kiddie pools to find uh, the suspect hiding under there in, in a wife beater and no shoes. Not one of those kind of, of heart pumping cops. So this Bellator thing is on uh, Friday. Friday. Is that right? That's so right. everyone should check it out at 7 p.m. in the one true time zone. 9 p.m. that time zone out east. Or probably delayed on the West Coast and then shows up a month later in the UK. Yeah. Speaking of Wikipedia not making your own, not making you your event its own page, uh, tape delay over there on the West Coast. Maybe that's sign number two that you got some catching up to do. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, speaking of the granddaddies of them all, Dan Henderson and Vitor Belfort are your main event this weekend in Brazil for another uh, UFC Fight Night event, which kicks off uh, a return to, to form for the UFC in its schedule, really, as pretty much every weekend between now and the end of the year, there will be some kind of event. Uh, ben, Dan Henderson is 45 years old. Okay. He's just going to believe that. He's just going to go out there and do the damn thing against 38-year-old Vitor Belfort. Uh I I made a joke in the in the opener about how it would be funny if these guys jumped on on the mic and said that they've been cheating the whole time, but like if you were going to make a documentary about the TR treat era, this would be the the last scene, right? This would be the final. This would be the climax. Would the first scene then be their fight in 2006 after which Vitor Belfort was busted? See, now we're, now we've got something here. We've got a narrative structure. Yeah. You know, I was writing a, in a column about this fight earlier today, how it's, this does tell you like a, a series of snapshots about doping in MMA, right? Like you, you had the first fight where Vitor Belfort is busted afterwards, loses the decision to Dan Henderson and that pride. Uh, and then, uh, that's the one where he's nabbed for that we still hold up or held up, especially during the TRT era to say, Hey, how is a convicted steroid cheat allowed to do TRT? Then you had the second fight in Brazil, uh, when it was kind of still in the TRT free for all days, both of them known users of TRT by that point. And now you have this one where I guess you're hoping nobody's on anything and they're both pretty old. And so, now we're going to get in there and see, for the sake of comparison maybe, uh, what we have left there uh, when two old dudes who used to use performance-enhancing drugs now hopefully, ostensibly, don't. Yeah, well, I mean, if you were looking to find Vitor a fight, right, and I guess if you're looking to find Dan Henderson a fight too, uh, this is the perfect one, right, because it's it's a, it's a rematch. You've got some uh, you got some extenuating circumstances. Uh, I know you know you know Dan Henderson is is wants to get back out there and try to get this one back from Vitor Belfort after Belfort beat him uh, in their second fight down there in Brazil. And this is also one where you know even though it, uh, I make the joke about it sort of being the the last scene in the TRT documentary, uh, if there's a fight where people are gonna kind of 
cut the guys some slack because of their previous dalliances with TRT, it would be this one, right? Because you basically got the two guys who were the highest profile users of TRT. Vitor Belfort was kind of the the poster boy for the negative uh, performance enhancing effects of TRT. And Dan Henderson, we all agreed, a guy that we were just going to treat more favorably for whatever reason. He was a patient zero of that shit. Because we liked him, I guess, because he seemed more honest about it. We were going to cut him a little bit of slack. Uh, so, like, if you want to find a fight for the two most, the best-known TRT guys, put them against each other, at that point, uh, I don't know what we have to say. Again, like, as as we mentioned, this fight also in Brazil. So, I guess, you, as you said, you hope nobody's on anything. Yeah, and that's where, I guess, we get into the question of whether USADA's able to have an impact in UFC so far because Vitor Belfort has said that he's been tested three times by USADA. I don't know. How many times has Dan Henderson been tested? I have no idea. Okay. I haven't looked at the website. Well, you can look at the website and figure it out. I mean, ideally, I think you'd like to see Vitor Belfort tested more than three times, as in maybe a bunch of damn times. They should be showing up at Vitor Belfort's house to see what's going on there, what's really going on over at Vitor Belfort's crib. The thing with him addressing the the deadspin report and the TRT thing. And his, his position is basically like, Hey, I never hit anything from anybody, which is not at all true uh, when it comes to Vitor Belfort. And I think that when we see stuff like this, like it seems like we're waiting to find out, all right, first of all, what are you going to look like when you have to take your shirt off and get on the scale? Are you going to look like dad bod Vitor Belfort? Are you going to look like incredible Hulk action figure Vitor Belfort? And then number two, what are you actually going to fight like? Because I think that the thing in his fight with Chris Weidman, everybody thought, oh, wow, there is a shocking physical transformation that has taken place. Uh, but then he kind of had the same Vitor burst in the early going that he's been known for and then got trucked almost immediately after that didn't work. And that's not too far off from the MO his entire career. And so now I think we have a little a fight where we might get a, a better chance to gauge where is Vitor Belfort right now? And I think that this is the kind of stuff that's going to be really important to his career because if, if from now on he the only choices are between like a Vitor Belfort who looks terrible and doesn't perform great and therefore we can be reasonably sure that he's not on anything or a Vitor Belfort who shows up looking pretty good and performs well, therefore raising suspicion – it seems like then he's in a situation where it's just bad news all around, right? Yeah, I mentioned that this was the perfect fight to make in a storybook fashion. It would also be the perfect fight for both guys to walk away after it, right? Not that we want to allege that's going to happen because uh, mixed martial arts fighters almost never leave well enough alone and walk away at the proper time. Uh, and neither Vitor Belfort nor Dan Henderson has ever given any indication that they will do anything but fight until... They can no longer get out of bed. Yeah, Henderson's uh, been really stubborn about it, in, in fact. In the day, you know. Uh, but Henderson is 2-5 and five in his last seven fights, even though he comes in off a knockout win over uh, Tim Boach. And, uh, boy, that one still hurts to <laughs> for the barbarian horde. That one whew, still still gives me a little kick in the chest every time I say uh, well, and the other one was against the other win and that and that two and five was Shogun Hua, where it looked like he was going to have a bad, bad night and then launch that right. right hand out of nowhere. And not that Vitor Belfort doesn't belong in the same crowd as those guys, because the post TRT Belfort very well might. But at the same time, uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, the noose of truth 
feels like it's been getting a little bit tighter around Vitor's neck these days. Well, with his having to pull out of scheduled media obligations because he's afraid people are going to ask him stuff. Uh, and not that he has ever been particularly uh, sensitive to that. Uh, nor has he ever, you know, shown to have the, 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 the thoughts about walking away. But like, if both the, if these guys had this fight and whoever won, and then they both decided to call it quits, like, I don't know that anyone could quibble with that as an outcome. No, I, I would not. I mean, that might be a best case scenario that yeah. I just laid out. They fight to a draw, both declare. An amazing draw. An ama- they, they fight to an amazing draw. Uh, take a drug test right there in the cage afterwards. Both announce that they're done, they're through, this is it. Uh, and they ride off together on the same horse, I imagine. And, no, yeah. and they, they jump in the same convertible. Or they're one of them. Wearing the same shades. <laughs> one of them driving the motorcycle, the other one in the sidecar. It's just burn rubber out of the parking lot. Yeah. Drive off into the sunset. But like you said, it doesn't seem like either one of these guys is anywhere close to willingly doing that. But then that, again, raises uh, the additional point of if this is the perfect fight to make for both these two guys, what do you do with the with either of them after it's over? Like uh, Vitor Belfort still seems, at least to me, uh, like damaged goods. And like even though you just booked him in a title fight, he did show up for that title fight looking strikingly different than he has looked in his, any of his previous fights. <laughs> Dan Henderson is 45 years old uh, and is two and five in his last seven fights. Uh, and especially if he loses this one. This becomes a real quandary, I would think, for matchmakers after this fight, if both these guys are are adamant about going on. Yeah, that does become a quandary. And you wonder if it's – like the question that it seemed like everybody was asking after Hendo went out there and took it to your boy Tim Boach is, is this one of those situations where the worst thing that could have happened to the dude is winning a fight? And I don't know. We, we may find out here uh, as – the career of Dan Henderson marches on, but I think that it could be the same situation for whoever comes out of this as the winner, uh, because there aren't too many of these kind of fights left out there. And especially for both these guys where name value wise and paycheck wise, they're looking at probably ended up in a main event or, you know, a co-main maybe, uh, depending on which card you stick them on. And once you get past the other old dudes who are hanging around there, uh, the other dudes who may or may not be damaged goods, then you get into the territory where there are a bunch of dudes who can straight up hurt you. Yeah, and additional to that, you know, if if the UFC decides that it wants to get into forced retirement mode, which it has done before, uh, generally with fighters that it has had a good relationship with, uh, we just talked in the last round about what business Bellator is in. Uh, and I would think, as as maybe dirty as it makes us feel that Bellator would be in either the Dan Henderson or the Vitor Belfort business, uh, because they would fit right in with their, with their crowd of, of aging superstars over there. Uh, anyway, anything else you wanted to say about this? Who you got, who wins this? I think Belfort probably wins it, even though I don't necessarily like to say that. Yeah. I think Belfort probably wins it too, mainly because these days Dan Henderson is going to take two shuffles and throw the right hand. And uh, if he can't get you there, he might not be able to get you. But, uh, you know, there's also that same thing. I still think the old playbook holds against Vitor Belfort. If you make it out of the first round, maybe even past the first three or four minutes, your chances of victory go way up, way up. All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll, uh, we'll be done for this week. Uh, Ben, for my just saying stuff this week, I wanted to read this recent quote from, UFC women's bantamweight champion Ronda Rousey. 
She said, and I quote, my goals are so crazy that what I'd really like to do, and I don't know if I have the time, I just want to do so many things. I want to be remembered as one of the greatest fighters of all time in any sport. I've got an Olympic medal. I would want to retire from MMA as one of the greatest of all time. I would love to have a chance to be a boxing world champion. I would love to have a chance to be a jiu-jitsu world champion. And I would love to have the chance to be WWE Divas world champion and just be the best at everything at one point. And how that is possible to do, I'm going to have to figure that out. But I'm trying to figure it out. And if anybody is capable, I think I am. Wow. Now, then last week I said I was just saying that boxing was not next for Ronda Rousey. Uh, this week, I guess I'm just saying it would be foolish for me to try to say that Ronda Rousey was going to lose a fight. Uh huh. But it also seems like she's starting to say all of the stuff that people say right before they lose a fight. I'm just saying. Just saying. So you're saying that this is not loser talk. But it is loserish talk. Loser. Well, and she also said she's fallen in love with boxing, which I think MMA champions like Matt Hughes and Randy Gatour, great grappling-based UFC champions, would probably be like, ah, don't fall too in love with it. Remember, yeah. remember what brought you to the dance. That is a classic MMA fighter, especially grappling specialist, pitfall. Yep. Right there. Yep. A lot of pitfalls around here, and but you know. It would be foolhardy to say Ronda Rousey was going to fall in a pitfall. She'll probably just vault right over him. But I'm just saying, a lot of pitfalls out there. Just opening up in the in the path. Just ahead. saying. Well, Chad, uh, this week I'm just saying I don't know if you saw these T-shirts that were being passed around. Images of these T-shirts uh, that were supposedly for sale on the UFC website. I did see them. And can't go a damn week without a t-shirt controversy these days. It seems that they were t-shirts just of various martial arts, like boxing and taekwondo Dundasso, and karate. etc. A particularly baffling one about jiu-jitsu, uh, which seemed to show two stick figures that looked like a couple of matches, uh, all twisted up doing nothing that really even resembled jiu-jitsu. I'm just saying... Maybe we don't have to try to make money off of absolutely everything. I think you have enough t-shirt designs available out there. There are plenty of t-shirts for sale on the UFC website. Now we're figuring like, how can we make money off just the, the mere existence of various martial arts? And how can we make money off of it while doing as little as possible in order to get that money? I'm just saying not everything has to be leveraged for other people's money. I'm just saying. Just saying. I'm waiting for the ninjutsu shirt. Yeah, wait. It's just a blank shirt. You know what? Nothing it's it's not there. even a shirt. It's you pay $20 and you walk outside topless. <laughs> People come up and they're like, where's your ninjutsu shirt? And you're like, you can't see it, huh? Hmm. Figures. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at this UFC fight night event with the main event between Dan Henderson and Vitor Belfort. And then, and then, ladies and gentlemen, we will look ahead to Ronda Rousey's coming clash with Holly Holm the following weekend. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What would the Dundasso shirt look like? It's funny you I should imagine. say that. It's funny you should ask possible people will get to find out in the near future you never know you never know what might happen around the co-main event podcast shit gets crazy over here. just one stick figure pointing off behind another stick figure waiting for him to turn his stick figure head on